Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 27th day of April, 2008. I'd like to welcome back all the regular listeners to the Corbett Report and remind all my listeners that all of the documentation backing up all of the information cited in today's episode can be garnered from the homepage www.corbettreport.com. Click on the Episodes tab, and under Episode 39, you'll find a documentation list with links to all of the information cited in today's episode. I'd like to let my listeners know about some exciting new developments at the Corbett Report, including the continuation of our weekly YouTube documentary series. This week's YouTube documentary is about the World Trade Center attacks in 1993 and how they were staged by an FBI informant. This YouTube documentary is particularly important because it features one of the actual phone calls between the FBI informant and his FBI handler, in which they discuss how the FBI informant had actually built the bomb that went off in the World Trade Center. This is extremely important information, and I hope that it's successfully presented in that YouTube documentary. Again, you can check out our YouTube documentaries. They will be posted on the front page of our website, CorbettReport.com. But for previous editions of the YouTube documentary series, you can always check them out on our YouTube account. The link to the YouTube account is in the link section of the CorbettReport.com homepage. On a different note, the Corbett Report podcast is now almost one year old. So far, we've brought you 39 episodes of the podcast, 25 interviews, 28 videos, and dozens of articles. The Corbett Report will, of course, continue in the coming year to bring you as many info weapons as it can to help you in the info war. But we've reached that point in our operation where our growth rests in the listeners' hands. There are many technical upgrades that I would like to implement for the Corbett Report to expand and improve on its operations. One upgrade of prime importance would be to upgrade our microphone to cut down on pops. Another upgrade would be to buy a device for recording phone calls directly from a landline so that interviews don't have to be conducted on an unreliable Skype connection. These are, of course, merely wishes and not vital to our operations, but they will help us to get the word out about this information. In order to make these upgrades to the website, we will, of course, require funds. Far be it from me to tell you that this website is the place that you should be spending your hard-earned money, but in order to implement these and other future upgrades to the website, we will require your support. At the moment, we have two ways for you to support the Corbett Report podcast if you find our work important. The first and recommended way would be to subscribe to the geopoliticalmonitor.com website. When you subscribe to that website, enter in the coupon code JCORBETT, J-C-O-R-B-E-T-T, and you'll receive a discount on your subscription, and part of the proceeds from your subscription will go to help fund the Corbett Report podcast. In this case, you get a subscription to an excellent and informative website, as well as helping our podcast, so that's obviously the best way to help support us. Or, if you'd like to donate to the website directly, we have started a chip-in account, this chip-in account can be seen at the bottom of the front page of our website, CorbettReport.com, and will feature chip-in events. Each chip-in event will be for a specific fundraising goal. For example, our first chip-in event 
is to help support the website domain registration and hosting fees for the upcoming year, which amounts to $89. Once that $89 has been raised, we'll move on to our second fundraising goal, which will be for the new microphone. In this way, listeners will be able to fund specific developments and upgrades to the website, rather than sending their money into a black hole. Once again, if you think we're doing a good job and you'd like to help support our operations in the future, please consider subscribing to geopoliticalmonitor.com using our coupon code or donating to the website through the chip-in event. And I'm pleased to announce that the chip-in was added only yesterday to the website, and already one loyal listener has made a generous donation of $20 towards our $89 fundraising goal. I'd like to give a heartfelt thank you to that loyal listener. And now, without further ado, it's time for today's real news. Our first story comes from the New York Times, April 20th, 2008. Behind analysts, the Pentagon's hidden hand. To the public, these men are members of a familiar fraternity, presented tens of thousands of times on television and radio as military analysts, whose long service has equipped them to give authoritative and unfettered judgments about the most pressing issues of the post-September 11th world. Hidden behind that appearance of objectivity, though, is a Pentagon information apparatus that has used those analysts in a campaign to generate favorable news coverage of the administration's wartime performance and examination by the New York Times has found. The effort, which began with the build-up to the Iraq War and continues to this day, has sought to exploit ideological and military allegiances, and also a powerful financial dynamic. Most of the analysts have ties to military contractors vested in the very war policies they are asked to assess on air. Those business relationships are hardly ever disclosed to the viewers, and sometimes not even to the networks themselves. But collectively, the men on the plane and several dozen other military analysts represent more than 150 military contractors, either as lobbyists, senior executives, board members, or consultants. The companies include defense heavyweights, but also scores of smaller companies, all part of a vast assemblage of contractors scrambling for hundreds of billions in military business generated by the administration's war on terror. It is a furious competition, one in which inside information and easy access to senior officials are highly prized. That story is especially important, and I encourage my listeners to get it out to everyone. The New York Times brand is still important to those who believe the controlled corporate media, so try to get this information out to anyone you think is still drinking the controlled corporate media Kool-Aid. Our second story comes from Infowars.net, Friday, April 25, 2008. Outspoken Arizona Senator questions 9-11 official version of events. Republican attacked for expressing opinion on September 11th cover-up. State Senator Karen Johnson, Republican, Mesa, has come under fierce criticism for going on record with her doubts over the government's version of events surrounding the 9-11 attacks. Following a vote in the Senate Appropriations Committee on Arizona's 9-11 memorial, Johnson told Capitol reporters, there are many of us that believe there's been a cover-up. Details of Johnson's comments come in a vicious hit piece in the Arizona Republic entitled Drinking the 9-11 Kool-Aid. The senator gave details about her theories. The World Trade Center buildings could have been rigged with thermite to melt girders. 
The aircraft could have been drones rather than the commercial airliners most of us thought we saw crashing into the Twin Towers. As to what became of the missing passengers in the aircraft that theoretically did not explode against the towers, that's what I would like to know, she said. Our final story this week comes from Infowars.com, April 24th, 2008. We are change activist framed for assaulting handicapped girl. It was apparently not enough Gary Tallis was attacked and punched by John Lovetro for making the mistake of asking the women of the Bush crime family a question about 9-11 truth and the illegal and immoral Iraq occupation. Now, according to the neocon newspaper The New York Post, Tallis was arrested after he punched the wheelchair-bound girl whose parents had told him to shut up for heckling, i.e. asking questions of the Bush women. As Jason Burmis noted on the Alex Jones Show today, Gary Tallis is non-violent and not likely to attack or yell obscenities at a girl with cerebral palsy confined to a wheelchair. But this is precisely what the New York Post and a gaggle of neocon blogs and websites claim. This account is at odds with version presented by other witnesses. Diane Lipson emailed the following account to Jones Report editor and journalist Aaron Dykes. The man in the blue jacket was pushing his daughter's wheelchair. Instead of going straight up the street, he veered over to the side of the building to where Gary was. Next thing I know, he caught Gary in a corner of the building and was wailing on him, saying that Gary had touched his daughter. I know Gary, and he would never do something like that. Gary's instinct is to protect women and children. He had Gary in the corner and was punching him and punching him. If Gary managed to defend himself, I did not see it. The man's wife was pleading with him to stop. The daughter in the wheelchair was in tears. Gary Tallis also appeared on Jones's show. He emphatically stated he did not assault the handicapped girl. In fact, he said, John Lovetro used his daughter as a weapon against him, ramming the wheelchair into his kneecaps and accusing him of attacking the girl. Tallis told Burmes he believes the attack was coordinated. In your denunciations of the Abu Ghraib photos, you've used words like sickening, disgusting, and reprehensible. Would you have any adjectives left to adequately describe the pictures from Saddam's rape rooms and torture chambers? And will the will Americans ever see those images? Oh, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up, Jeff. Because go ahead, Jeff. Doesn't Joe Wilson owe the president? and America an apology for his deception and his own intelligence failure? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, Thanks. Uh, why hasn't the administration made more of the UN inspector's report that says Saddam Hussein was dismantling his missile and uh, WMD sites before and during the war? Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, I'd like to comment on the angry mob that surrounded Karl Rove's house on Sunday. Go ahead, Jeff. Since there have been so many questions about what the president was doing over 30 years ago, what is it that he did after his honorable discharge from the National Guard? Did he make speeches alongside Jane Fonda denouncing Americans' racist war in Vietnam? Did he testify before Congress that American troops committed war crimes in Vietnam? And did he throw somebody else's medals at the White House to protest a war America was still fighting? What was he doing Not after his, his honorable yes, discharge? Thank you. Uh, Senate uh, Democratic leaders have painted a very bleak picture of uh, the U.S. economy. Uh, Harry Reid was talking about uh, soup lines, and Hillary Clinton was talking about uh, 
the economy being on the verge of collapse. Yet, in the same breath, they say that Social Security is rock solid and there's no crisis there. Well, how are you going to work with people who seem to have uh, divorced themselves from reality? What you've just heard are some of the highlights, or should I say lowlights, of the reporting career of White House press reporter Jeff Gannon. Jeff Gannon first received a White House press pass in 2003, reporting for something called the Talon News Service, but became notorious in early 2005 for his ridiculously softball questions in the White House press briefings. That last question that you heard in which he claims that Democrats are divorced from reality got some media organizations to take a closer look at Jeff Gannon. This closer look was conducted by various liberal blogs and spearheaded by the respected media organization Media Matters for America. They came out with a story on January 26, 2005 on the issue, headlined, Talon News Reporter Lobs Bush Another Softball. Is Talon a news organization or an arm of the Republican Party? This article reads in part, quote, Although Gannon is a regular at White House press briefings and Talon News claims to be a news organization, Talon appears to be little more than an arm of the Republican Party. Talon News' editor-in-chief, Bobby Eberly, is a Republican activist who served as a delegate to the 1996, 1998, and 2000 Texas Republican conventions and to the 2000 National Republican Convention. In 1999, Eberly was recognized with a unanimously approved resolution of commendation by the Republican Party of Texas for service and dedication to the Republican cause. Eberly is also the president and CEO of GopUSA.com, a conservative news, information, and design company dedicated to promoting conservative ideals that carries articles and commentary by Gannon and Talon News. Gannon's articles for Talon News frequently appear on GopUSA.com. Gannon identifies himself on his personal website as a voice of the new media and a conservative journalist embedded with the liberal Washington press corps. The top item on his website reads, Note to my liberal colleagues, Bush is here for another four years. Get over it. You threw everything you had at him, even phony documents, and he still beat you. Give up. End quote. The scrutiny continued in the coming weeks, with Media Matters and other liberal bloggers continuing to press into the Jeff Gannon mystery of this White House press corps reporter who continuously lobbed ridiculously softball questions at the president and his representatives. The story took a strange twist, however, and became national news around mid-February of 2005. As scrutiny of Jeff Gannon and Talon News increased, he eventually resigned his post as reporter for the Talon News Service, which was beginning to look more and more like a phony Republican front. At this point, the story seemed like a rather straightforward example of the Republicans planting a White House press reporter in the press corps to lob softball questions at the president. The story took a bizarre turn, however, when liberal bloggers managed to discover that Jeff Gannon was in fact James Dale Guckert, that he had been using a pseudonym and that in his previous career he had registered websites with domain names such as hotmilitarystud.com. That can be gathered from this news article from WashingtonPost.com. Online nude photos are latest chapter in Jeff Gannon saga. Quote, the Jeff Gannon story is still bouncing around the internet, and now there are pictures, the kind you shouldn't open up in the office. In most Beltway melodramas, the resignation ends the story. The problem for Gannon, 
whose real name is James Dale Guckert, is that he told the Washington Post and CNN's Wolf Blitzer last week that he never launched the website whose provocative names he had registered, such as hotmilitarystud.com. But a web designer in California said yesterday that he had designed a gay escort site for Gannon and had posted naked pictures of Gannon at the client's request. The latest developments were first reported by John Aravosis, a liberal political consultant and gay activist who has a website called americablog.org. What struck me initially was the hypocrisy angle, Aravosis said. He said he was offended by what he called Gannon's anti-gay writing. End quote. The prurient nature of the story obviously attracted a lot of the media attention, but underneath this there were some very serious questions about how this man, who had no experience as a reporter other than his credentials with Talon News, which wasn't even created at the time he received his original White House press pass, managed to get into the White House and ask questions to the president. At the height of the fracas, Jeff Gannon appeared on the Anderson Cooper show on CIA. I mean, CNN. No, who am I kidding? I do mean CIA. And it is admitted that Anderson Cooper is CIA. And for that information, again, please check my documentation list at the current time index. But let's take a listen to Anderson Cooper, who in this interview, at least, was surprisingly hard on Jeff Gannon and asked some tough questions. The first record we have now of you actually being at a White House press briefing uh, was in February 28, 2003, as you said, before Talon News even existed. So why were you given a White House pass? I was given a White House, well, you'll have to ask the White House that, but, but I asked to attend the White House briefing because I was, uh, you know, because I wanted to uh, report on the activities there. But, but GOP USA is not a news organization. Well, we we were we were we had established a uh, a news division, and it was later renamed Talon News. Because th this is news to, to just about everybody. Uh, you know, Talon News wasn't registered, I think, until uh, well March 29th of 2003. I think the first articles didn't appear until April 1st. So I guess the questions that are being raised are: Why were you at a allowed to go to a White House briefing if you're working for GOP USA, which is a clearly partisan organization? There are many, many organizations, many people that are allowed to attend the White House briefings. I don't know the criteria they use. But you weren't even publishing anything. You weren't reporting anything. Well, actually, I was at where, the time. Where, when was the first article you I, ever published? I, well, well, you're. Uh, I don't know that because I'm I'm here in your in your studio here, and I don't know the answer to specific dates. All I can tell you is that that uh, and and frankly, all these questions about. Uh, Talon News and GOP USA. You need to ask uh, th uh, them about that because I don't represent them any longer. Yeah. Well, we, we've asked them. They they refuse to talk about it. Well, I mean, th they would be the ultimate authority on that. Uh, this liberal group, Media Matters, which I'm sure you, you know well about, they have been very critical of you. Uh, really looked into this uh, probably closer than just about anybody. They say that essentially you're not a real reporter. That. Uh, and it's not even a question of being an advocate, that you uh, have directly lifted large segments of your reports directly from White House uh, press releases. All my stories were usually titled, uh, White House Says, uh, President Bush uh, Wants, and I uh, relied on 
transcripts from the briefings. I relied on press releases that were sent to the press for the purpose of accurately portraying what the White House uh, believed or, or wanted. But using the term reporting implies some sort of vetting, some sort of research, some sort of, I mean, if you are, if that's called faxing or, 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 or Xeroxing. I mean, uh, if you're just lifting transcripts and, and putting them into if, an article. If, if I am communicating to my readers exactly what the White House believes on, on any certain issue, that's reporting to them an unvarnished, unfiltered version of what uh, the, what they believe. Uh-huh. Well, I think that pretty clearly establishes the fact that Jeff Gannon was not, in fact, a reporter. The obvious conclusion then being that he was simply a plant designed to ask easy questions during difficult press conferences. But the, still, there's more to this story. A couple of very important things to keep in mind is that he received Secret Service clearance to be given his White House press passes. Secret Service clearance involves background checks, obviously, including, one would suspect, finding out about someone's real name, i.e. not Jeff Gannon, James Guckert. So how on earth did he manage to receive these Secret Service clearances? And further checks into his reporting career found that Gannon was receiving important information before any other news source, including confidential memos about the Plamegate affair. These are extremely important issues, and they were brought up by Leslie Stahl, the 60 Minutes reporter, on the Bill Maher show during the height of the scandal. All right, let's talk about Jeff Gannon. (laughs) I mean, the environment is important, but my God, the White House has ties to gay prostitution. Um, I don't, I don't, I do not understand, having covered the White House for as long as I did, how he got, I, I just don't get it, how he got a press pass yes. on, a, on a false name, on an I, alias. I, 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 I don't know I, how that happened. You have to, you have to be cleared through well, the Secret Service in order to get a press pass, which you have to wear at all time. I mean, there's something behind this story that hasn't come out, and, clearly. Okay, well. Clearly. <laughs> I'm going to suggest what that is. Because not only did he have a press pass, but apparently he got scoops that other reporters didn't get. He got the one before anybody else had it on your boy Dan Rather when he got in trouble with the the Swift Boat reporting. He got the story on the uh, attack of Baghdad when we started the war in March of 2003, four hours before anybody else got it. Now, I don't want to start rumors here, but isn't it sort of obvious that he had a boyfriend in the White House. (laughs) Somebody at the highest level was spilling the beans while he was spilling the beans. How did he get a Secret Service press pass? How did that happen? Okay, someone leaked stories. And of course, we won't have an investigation of that, will we? But how did he get a Secret Service press pass? I, With an alias. Uh, I mean, I, I think... I, I mean, really, I cannot figure it out. Well, what do you think of my suggestion? I mean... Well, I, I'm saying wh- once he got into the White House, fine, someone was leaking him stories. But let's... I'm asking how he gets through the FBI clearance and the Secret Service. How does that happen? Well, I think there was a mole in the White House, or maybe a gerbil would be a mole. <laughs> All right, I... <laughs> 
cheap jokes and cheap laughs are, of course, an important way of getting people distracted from the real issues, like the ones that Leslie Stahl was trying to bring up. In fact, as was to become evident shortly, the mystery around Jeff Gannon was even more bizarre than what was known at that time. On April 24, 2005, Ross Story came out with this story, headlined, Secret Service Records Raise New Questions About Discredited Conservative Reporter. It reads in part, quote, In what is unlikely to stem the controversy surrounding disgraced White House correspondent James Guckert, the Secret Service has furnished logs of the writer's access to the White House after requests by two Democratic Congress members. Guckert made more than 200 appearances at the White House during his two-year tenure with the fledgling conservative websites Gop USA and Talon News, attending 155 of 196 White House press briefings. He had little to no previous journalism experience, previously worked as a male escort, and was refused a congressional press pass. Perhaps more notable than the frequency of his attendance, however, is several distinct anomalies about his visits. Guckert made more than two dozen excursions to the White House when there were no scheduled briefings. On many of these days, the press office held press gaggles aboard Air Force One, which raises questions about what Guckert was doing at the White House. On other days, the president held photo opportunities. On at least 14 occasions, Secret Service records show either the entry or exit time missing. Generally, the existing entry or exit time correlate with press conferences. On most of these days, the records show that Guckert checked in, but was never processed out. In March 2003, Guckert left the White House twice on days he had never checked in with the Secret Service. Over the next 22 months, Guckert failed to check out with the service on 14 days. On several of these visits, Guckert either entered or exited by a different entry-exit point than his usual one. On one of these days, no briefing was held. On another, he checked in twice, but failed to check out. I'd be worried if I was the White House and I knew that a reporter with a day pass never left, one White House reporter told Raw's story. I'd wonder, where is he hiding? It seems like a security risk. End quote. Indeed, even if the only concern here was that Jeff Gannon was a paid conservative lobbyist who had snuck into the press corps, the issue here is obviously much larger, one of national security, with someone with no accreditation, using a false name, getting past the Secret Service, getting into the White House, literally in the same room as the President of the United States. This is an incredible breach of security, and the fact that the Secret Service was not keeping adequate logs of the reporter's entry and exit into the White House is even more worrying. It should have, at the very least, launched an automatic investigation by the appropriate congressional committees, but no such investigation was launched. What was Guckert doing on those days when there were no press briefings? Well, on an appearance on the Bill Maher show, Maher posed that question, and Guckert attempted to explain what he was doing. But it came out this week, the Freedom of Information request was uh, granted, and you made three dozen visits, apparently, to the White House at times when there were no press briefings going on. On 14 occasions, the Secret Service has no record of your entry and exit times. Uh, what were you doing in the White House? There's lots of things that go on at the White House when there aren't briefings. I've been to briefings with other administration officials, Condoleezza Rice, Alberto Gonzalez, uh, Andy Card, Dan Bartlett. Uh, I've gone down to uh, the T-ball games on the South Lawn on Sunday afternoons in the summer. 
a lot of times I would go down to uh, meet the, uh, the president when he returned from a, uh, from a trip and stand along the rope line trying to shout a question at him. That's what reporters do. So all these times that you were at the White House when there was no press briefing going on, that's what I, you were doing? I was, I was being a reporter. Okay. So, so you would say here on the show tonight that there was nothing else going on, that you were never engaged in any sort of personal business at the White House with anyone who worked at the White House? Absolutely, unequivocally not. Okay. Um, well, let's move on to your website, hotmilitarystud.com. <laughs> well, I'm just saying I, I didn't make that up. It, it yeah, says no. you wrote, I don't leave marks, only impressions. Um, <laughs> oh. I'm just saying, if the, White, if the Clinton White House, if this had happened during the wow. Clinton White House, if there was someone who had this in his past, who was now working in the Clinton White House, with rather dubious credentials under a false name, don't you think they would have made a bigger thing of it under a Democratic administration? Don't you think the Republicans would have been... A Stop it! Don't you think the Republicans would have been all over that? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but usually the way it works is uh, people become reporters before they prostitute themselves. Ah. <laughs> Touche, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Um, okay, I understand... <laughs> Touche, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Well, I mean, Guckert, I mean, whatever you're calling yourself, just don't do it again, okay, you rascal? Uh, there you go. Well, so what I've learned from Bill Maher is that this is really all just a big Republican, Democrat, left-right kind of thing, where the real issue is the hypocrisy involved, because if this had been a Democrat scandal, you better believe that Republican right-wing media would have been all over it. <sighs> yes, go back to sleep, everyone. That's all there is to see. And the story eventually started to fade into the background until it became even more bizarre. So what on earth does Jeff Gannon or James Guckert have to do with this? There was nothing distinct about the packet allegedly dropped in the doorway in the calm of the morning just outside Des Moines, Iowa. I thought, oh, how nice. Somebody left me something for my birthday. It was only when Noreen Gosh said she looked inside the parcel that she was taken back. Nearly a quarter of a century to the day her 12-year-old son, Johnny, became the face of America's missing children. I opened it up and pulled out the pictures, and the top one was of Johnny alone, uh, bound and gagged. And then when I looked at the second picture, there's not only my son laying there, but there's two other boys. I feel for Miss Gosh. West Des Moines Police Lieutenant Jeff Miller. In the last 24 years, we've received leads, and so far, nothing has turned up that's going to tell us where Johnny Gosh is. Johnny Gosh was about to deliver newspapers on his route here in this unassuming neighborhood in West Des Moines while his mom and dad were still asleep. It was September 5th, 1982. What would happen next would strike fear into the hearts of parents everywhere. He came around the corner down here pulling his wagon full of papers, and he stopped right in front of this house. Noreen and contends a stranger then pulled up to the curb and dragged her son into a car. About a year and a half after the kidnapping, we got a phone call one day and there was a young boy crying and asking for help. From that point, Noreen says the trail went cold. Johnny's face appeared on milk cartons, 
sometimes alongside Eugene Martin, a 13-year-old paper boy who vanished in Des Moines in 1984. At that time, there was a pattern of uh, newspaper boys. Former NYPD detective Jim Rothstein has been investigating the case for 10 years. He believes Johnny was held captive by a ring of pedophiles. This is a typical uh, operation where they have picked up and uh, singled out a particular victim that they're going to take. For more than a decade, Noreen kept her porch light on, waiting for her son to return. In 1997, at 27 years old, she says he came back for a short visit, accompanied by a silent, shadowy figure. What did he say to you? He said, this is what they did. They took kids from different parts of the country. They used us for prostitution. They made us be with pedophiles for money. But the meeting ended almost as quickly as it began, and Noreen claims she found no trace of her son until August 27th, when the mysterious photos allegedly appeared on her doorstep. When these pictures finally came forward, uh, it just verified that what we have been working on uh, was probably factual. Or was it? Is someone reaching through time to send a mother a clue about her missing child? Or are these disturbing images part of some twisted hoax? I was shocked to see the photographs. Florida investigator Nelson Zalva claims he saw the same photos while working for the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department several years before Johnny Gosh's disappearance. I identified the kids, identified the man who was taking the pictures, to the best of my recollection. As unsettling as these pictures are, Zalva says the children insisted they were models and nothing more. Sorry I can't give you names because it was 28 years ago. Still, an Iowa crime lab continues to examine the photos. Most people don't even believe these things exist. And that's the biggest problem we have. Nobody wants to believe it. And Johnny's mother still believes these photos are real and are of her son. She is waiting to hear from investigators in Iowa as they continue to double check what's going on. A bizarre and tragic tale to be sure. But what does it have to do with Jeff Gannon? Here we have the story of Johnny Gosh, a young paperboy who was abducted on his route over 25 years ago. Well, the extraordinary and extraordinarily bizarre answer comes in this report from the Des Moines Register from April 6, 2005. Gannon. Is he Johnny Gosh? Quote, Johnny Gosh may finally have been found, thanks to Rush Limbaugh. The Iowa paperboy was kidnapped in 1982 with unsubstantiated stories emerging later from his mother that he was abducted into a child pedophilia ring. No trace of him has ever been found, and no suspects have been arrested. Nearly 23 years later, White House correspondent Jeff Gannon, who wrote for a conservative website, was exposed in February as James D. Guckert, a man with no journalism experience and links to several gay escort addresses online. If you have time to read a few hundred web postings, you will see how Johnny Gosh and Jeff Gannon, two completely unrelated individuals, became the same person on the web. The way the theory developed says much about the anything-goes nature of the blogosphere and self-proclaimed reporters on the internet, who seem to find accuracy and proof a nuisance in uncovering fantastical conspiracies. It took the random efforts of scores of webloggers, bloggers, credulous readers and longtime followers of the case to assign the two men a bizarre shared backstory involving satanic CIA agents, pedophiles, and presidents. And, of course, Limbaugh. Gosh's mother, Noreen Gosh, called the theory quite bizarre, but not impossible. We don't have anything conclusive, she said. End quote. 
Now, while the piece as a whole is a rather poorly written whitewash, helpfully telling us in brackets that web loggers can be abbreviated as bloggers, and talking about fantastic conspiracies, it also notes that, yes, in fact, Noreen Gosh, Johnny Gosh's own mother, believed there may be some truth to the claims, and she went on national TV to back that up. So do we think Jeff Gannon can actually be Johnny Gosh? The bis missing boy's mother seems to think so. With us right now is Noreen Gosh. Also here is Andy Stevenson. He's the online investigator familiar with the Johnny Gosh case. And Andy was the first to reach out to Noreen Gosh to talk about this possible connection. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. So as far as we're concerned here now, uh, 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 Noreen, Noreen, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Noreen. When did you first come to your attention, when did it first come to your attention that this person, Jeff, could be your son? It was in late February that I was contacted by Andy Stevenson, and he asked me if I was aware of the stories that were circulating on the Internet. And I said I didn't know anything, I hadn't heard that. And he sent me an email uh, explaining the situation and some of the blogs that were on the Internet links and some photographs. And that's when I learned about it for the first time. You know, Andy, as far as you're concerned, you were the online investigator. I mean, I read through some of these stories here. Some of them are knocking me off my feet with all these blogs about CIA, Chinese people, sex crimes, and children in sex uh, duos and all kinds of things. Andy, what is fact and what is fish fiction? Because as far as I'm concerned, my investigations into these computer uh, websites and all that, anyone can print anything. Well, sure, anybody can print anything, but uh, when you're backing it up with facts and, and you're doing the investigative work, you know, I, I don't like to say things unless they're true. So, you know, we have done a lot of the work. We don't know for sure whether uh, Mr. Gannon is Johnny, but but the, the photographic er, uh, evidence is, is quite compelling, and there are several similarities between Johnny Gosh and Mr. Gannon. You know, uh, as far as as far as Noreen, Noreen. Now, this was your son. You say you saw her back in 1997. Did you see your son I did in 1997? Were you sure that was your son when you saw him? Were you sure that was your son? In 1997, I was sure that that was my son. Right. And then when he came to see you, what did he say to you? When he came to see me, he told me how the entire network operated. <laughs> that he was taken for the purpose of sex and for prostitution and that he uh, had names for me to give to authorities to begin to work on hopefully to resolve the case and I tried to convince him that he needed to be the one to go forward and he was too afraid too frightened to even do that okay something is extremely bizarre here Noreen Gosh Johnny Gosh's own mother cannot tell whether or not Jeff Gannon or James Guckert or whatever else he's calling himself is or is not her son. Well, surely there must be some simple way of determining whether or not this is her son. I mean, we live in a scientific age. There must be something that can be done. Well, luckily, such an idea was put forth on the Deedle and Danielle show. Deedle, of course, refers to Bo Deedle, who some of my listeners might know as the Bo Deedle who was confronted by We Are Change New York a couple of months ago in New York. Now, last year, the reprehensible Bo Deedle had appeared with the even more reprehensible Bill O'Reilly to threaten, directly threaten, 
Charlie Sheen not to provide the voiceover for the 9-11 Truth documentary Loose Change Final Cut. You can look up the actual video on my website, but basically his threat went something like, Charlie, Charlie, listen, you don't want to do this. I'm telling you, you don't want to do this. Bo Deedle being, of course, a retired New York City police detective who had his own investigative agency and has become something of a media star on the punditry circuit of these rehashed, tired old, corporate-controlled media news shows. Well, on the Deedle and Danielle show, they actually had Jeff Gannon on, or James Guckert, or whatever you call him, to talk about this idea that he is Johnny Gosh. And they put to him the idea of taking a DNA test. Jeff, one question for you. Let's get right to the point. Are you willing to take a DNA test and settle the controversy once and for all? Yes or no? Absolutely, I would definitely take a DNA test, but that isn't even necessary because there's so much evidence to uh, available to disprove these accusations. That's a yes, then. Well, you are well he's saying yes. My friend Jeff yes, is you know saying what? yes. As a lawyer, I can, I can, All right. smell, I can smell a no, 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 no. you so. got to understand something. My friend here, Jeff, who's come on our show today, didn't do anybody else's show, he's going to tell us the fact. Jeff, how old are you first off? I'm, I'm 48 years 48 old. 48 years old. My man Johnny Gashi there would be 35 years old. Lisa, Why the are you numbers, avoiding the question? No, 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 no. Question. He just said, he just said, hey, Jeff, you said you would take a DNA. I could set this whole thing up, but let's get to the point. Let's get to the point. The point is, by giving a DNA sample, there could be opening up some other avenues of things that I kind of know that you possibly could be involved. And I don't knock it. Again, if you want to go suck on a Johnny Pump or whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, you could do in this world. But the point is, all we're here for, all we're here for is to show that my friend Jeff is not Johnny Gush. Jeff? There are dozens of people who have known me most of my life that uh, could... uh, definitely vouch for the fact that I am not this person. Look, what happened to this, this child and the, the suffering that his mother has endured is, is a tragedy. But it's also uh, been very difficult for, for me and my family, my real mother and, and, and members of my family, who have had to uh, listen to these uh, fabrications being spread uh, in newspapers, on television, and uh, on the Internet. All right, so I'm going to ask you a question, not Bo. Jeff, are you willing to take a DNA test, yes or no? Yes uh, or no? Yes. When I cut my finger yesterday, there was plenty of DNA available. You should have stopped by. What else you want, Lisa? Are the you man? his lawyer? No, excuse me. Excuse see. me. He's my friend, my friend Jeff down here. Jeff, thank you for coming on the show again. You know what we're doing here? All this conspiracy stuff on the blogs, on all these internets, what we're doing is we're cutting to the chase now. Again, again... I don't understand why, you know, and you said it to me over the phone, and you said that you feel sorry for Noreen. Uh, you feel sorry for her missing her son, and you wouldn't put her through if you were her son. You're you said you're 40. In his mouth he boat. says he's 40. Jeff, let's hear from him. What did you think when you saw Noreen Gosh? Let him speak. Uh, Go let, ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. I feel that, that this woman is being used by people who are trying to promote themselves as being investigators when they're not. They're fabricators. They're, uh, they've defamed me and put this woman through, uh, through unnecessary pain, uh, giving her hope where, where it, uh, it doesn't exist. Jeff, 
You tell them. And I'm going to tell you something right now, Jeff. If we, we want to shut everybody's mouths up, I'll arrange with you a little DNA, give me a little blood, a little survive, saliva, whatever you want to do, and then we'll get a little from Noreen, and we'll see, and we'll show them it doesn't match, and then everyone will keep their mouths shut and let you get on with your life. Because as far as I'm concerned, whatever you do in your life, if it's not a crime involved, whatever you want to be involved with, I don't really care. What I care about is people making up stories about other people and letting, making you live now on the edge of your life. My friend Jeff, this is not Johnny Gosh. Jeff, I'm telling you, my friend Jeff, just give me some blood, give me some saliva, bada bing, bada boom, I'll set it up. We get your DNA test. This, this is my friend Jeff. This is not Johnny Gosh. This is my friend Jeff. Okay, well, whatever you say, Mr. Deedle. Um, I'm asking this not as a rhetorical question to my listeners. I truly mean it, and it's not a nudge-nudge-wink-wink question either. I really do not understand how Jeff Gannon became such good friends with Bo Deedle. What is the point of connection between this discredited White House press reporter slash gay male escort and this retired New York City police officer? If there's a connection there that I'm missing, please fill me in. But I'm not sure how they became such close friends. At any rate, there you have it. Needless to say, the DNA test was never done. And the story, of course, faded into the background, as things usually do in the controlled corporate media when they're of any importance. So I guess that's just where we can leave the story, because there's no point of connection between this and the Johnny Gosh story other than some insane innuendo. There's nothing really substantial behind this, and there's certainly no history of gay male escorts in the White House. Right? Sources confirmed a Washington Times report today that D.C. police and the Internal Revenue Service are investigating a male prostitution ring whose clients may have included people connected to the Bush and Reagan administrations. But the sources told CBS News there is no indication at present that the investigation involves any high government or military officials. And if Washington doesn't have enough to talk about these days, the Washington Times reported today that unidentified White House aides in the Carter, Reagan, and Bush administrations now are being investigated for using the services of a callboy ring. The paper reports that two of the male prostitutes were given a late-night tour of the White House last year. The White House press secretary, Marlon Fitzwater, said he knew nothing of this investigation. NBC's Lisa Myers reports her sources in the U.S. Attorney's Office say the investigation is not focusing on prostitution, but on fraud involving the use of credit cards to pay for the callboy services. Yes, that's right. You were just listening to the reports of Dan Rather and Connie Chung on a White House sex scandal that erupted in 1989 that most people have never heard about because it was only talked about at the time and then quickly forgotten about. But it also made the front page of the Washington Times under the headline Homosexual Prostitution Inquiry Ensnares VIPs with Reagan and Bush. Subhead, Callboys Took Midnight Tour of White House. You can read the entire Washington Times article online, and again, from the documentation list on corporatereport.com, you can find a link to the actual scans of the actual article itself. But for a narrative of these events that I think is second to none, let's turn to a researcher who many of my listeners will be familiar with already, Webster Tarpley, who with Anton Chaitkin wrote in the Bush, the Unauthorized Biography, an excellent book sections of which are available online, wrote this, quote, On the morning of June 29, 1989, pandemonium erupted in the corridors of power in the nation's capital. The Times reported, 
A homosexual prostitution ring is under investigation by federal and district authorities and includes among its clients key officials of the Reagan and Bush administration, military officers, congressional aides, and U.S. and foreign businessmen with close ties to Washington's political elite. The expose centered on the role of one Craig Spence, a Republican power broker known for his lavish power cocktail parties. Spence was well-connected. He celebrated Independence Day 1988 by conducting a midnight tour of the White House in the company of two teenage male prostitutes, among others, in his party. Rumors circulated that a list existed of some 200 Washington prominents who had used the callboy service. The number two in charge of personnel affairs at the White House, who was responsible for filling all the top civil service posts in the federal bureaucracy, and Secretary of Labor Elizabeth Dole's chief of staff, were two individuals publicly identified as patrons of the callboy ring. Two of the ring's callboys were allegedly KGB operatives, according to a retired general from the Defense Intelligence Agency interviewed by the press. But the evidence seems to point to a CIA sexual blackmail operation instead. Spence's entire mansion was covered with hidden microphones, two-way mirrors, and video cameras, ever ready to capture the indiscretions of Washington's high, mighty, and perverse. Months after the scandal had died down, and a few weeks before he allegedly committed suicide, Spence was asked who had given him the key to the White House. The Washington Times reported that Mr. Spence hinted the tours were arranged by top-level persons, including Donald Gregg, National Security Advisor to Vice President Bush, and later U.S. Ambassador to South Korea. George Bush was less than pleased with the media coverage of the prostitution charges and kept abreast of the scandal as it mushroomed. The Washington Times reported in an article titled White House Mute on Callboy Scandal that White House sources confirmed that President Bush has followed the story of the late-night visit and Mr. Spence's links to a homosexual prostitution ring under investigation by federal authorities since they were disclosed June 29th in the Washington Times. But top officials will not discuss the story's substance, reportedly even among themselves. As the callboy ring affair dominated the cocktail gossip circuit in Washington, another scandal halfway across the country in the state of Nebraska, peaked. Again, this scandal knocked on the president's door. A black Republican who had been a leader in organizing minority support for the president's 1988 campaign, and who proudly displayed a photo of himself and the president arm-in-arm in in his Omaha home, was at the center of a sex and money scandal that continues to rock the Cornhusker state. The scandal originated with the collapse of the minority-oriented Franklin Community Credit Union in Omaha, directed by Lawrence E. King Jr., a nationally influential black Republican who sang the national anthem at both the 1984 and 1988 Republican conventions. King became the subject of the Nebraska State's investigation conducted by the specially created Franklin Committee to probe charges of embezzlement. In November 1988, King's offices were raided by the FBI, and $40 million was discovered missing. Within weeks, the Nebraska State which initially opened the inquiry to find out where the money had gone, instead found questioning young adults and teenagers who said that they had been child prostitutes. Social workers and state child care administrators accused King of running a child prostitution ring. The charges grew with the former police chief of Omaha, the publisher of the state's largest daily newspaper, and several other political associates of King, finding themselves accused of patronizing the child prostitution ring. The Weekly stated that Roy Stevens, a private investigator who has worked on the case and heads the Missing Youth Foundation, 
says there is reason to believe that the CIA is directly implicated and that the FBI refuses to help in the investigation and has sabotaged any efforts to get to the bottom of the story. Stevens says that Paul Bonassi directly accused President Bush of being implicated in the affair when he testified before the Franklin Committee. Bonassi, who had been one of the child prostitutes, is identified by leading child abuse experts as a well-informed, credible witness. Lawrence King was no stranger to President Bush, and Lawrence King was no stranger to Craig Spence. Several of the Omaha child prostitutes testified that they had traveled to Washington, D.C. with King in private planes to attend political events which were followed by sex parties. King and Spence had much in common. Not only were they both Republican Party activists, but they had gone into business together procuring prostitutes for Washington's elite. Bush's name had repeatedly surfaced in the Nebraska scandal, but his name was first put into print in July 1989, a little less than a month after the Washington Callboy affair had first made headlines. Omaha's leading daily newspaper reported, One child, who has been under psychiatric care, is said to believe she saw George Bush at one of King's parties. End quote. All right, so it seems that perhaps Jeff Gannon was not the only male escort to be getting into the White House late at night. And in fact, in previous cases, these people had been underage teenage boys. This ties in with the Bush-Reagan administration and ties directly into the Franklin child abuse case, an extremely important child abuse case which has long been swept under the rug. In 1993, Discovery Channel hired Yorkshire Television, a British-based documentary film crew, to make a documentary about the Franklin child abuse case. It was scheduled to air on May 3rd, 1994, the date that was published in the TV Guide. But on that date, the groundbreaking documentary did not air. Apparently, the documentary had been pulled after Congress struck a deal with the cable companies to keep it from going to air. The production company was paid the half-million-dollar production fees, and all copies of the tape were destroyed. Or so it was thought. Someone anonymously mailed the sole surviving cutting-room copy of the tape to John DeCamp, a Republican Nebraskan state senator who is now one of the foremost researchers and authorities on the Franklin case. This sole surviving copy of the tape has now ended up on Google Video, and I strongly suggest that all of my listeners check out this documentary to find out more about this horrific child abuse case. Let's listen to a bit of the Conspiracy of Silence documentary, which was saved from the cutting room floor by an anonymous tipster. Once one of America's top Republicans, Lawrence King is serving a 15-year prison sentence for a multi-million dollar fraud. But financial crime is only half the story. This is the true story of Lawrence King. It is the story of a cancer at the heart of America and of its continuing cover-up at the highest level. One man is attempting to uncover the full story. John DeCamp is among the most highly decorated Vietnam veterans. A former Republican state senator in Lincoln, Nebraska, he is now a lawyer fighting the legacy of Lawrence King's abuse of power. It's a web of intrigue 
that starts in our Holy of Holies, Boys Town, Nebraska, one of the most respected institutions in the United States, and spreads out like a spider web to Washington, D.C., right up to the steps of the nation's capital, the steps of the White House, involves some of the most respected and powerful and richest businessmen in this United States of America. And the centerpiece of the entire web is the use of children for sex and drug dealing and drug couriers, the compromising of politicians, the compromising of businessmen, but worst of all, the corruption of key institutions of government that have the duty and responsibility to make sure these things never happen. For John DeCamp, the trail starts in a unique town just outside Omaha. Boys Town has been granted the privileges of an incorporated town, a Catholic diocese, and a school district for 500 children. Boys Town has cash reserves of $500 million, but still raises up to $35 million annually, solicited from the public by begging letters and promotional videos. I'm Father Val Peter, the caretaker of Father Flanagan's Dream and the executive director of Boys Town. Does Boys Town really exist, people ask me? You bet it does. Located in the heartland of America, Boys Town youth have come from many backgrounds and locales. As they graduate, they shall seek new adventures and head for different places. But always, they shall carry with them the spirit of Boys Town. If you'd like to help Boys Town, send your tax-deductible gift to Father Val Peter, Boys Town, Nebraska, 68010. From 1979, Larry King developed close commercial ties to Boys Town, and Boys Town youngsters were sent to work for his companies. Boys Town had quite a few accounts at Franklin Credit Union. Those were considered very valuable accounts. They were handled exclusively by the bookkeeping department. But on the average of once a month or once every two months, we always seem to incorporate a person from Boys Town. But King used Boys Town not just as a source of young boys for his business. He prostituted them at sex and drug orgies. Paul Bonassi was a victim of King's abuse. He was also sent by King to lure Boys Town youngsters off campus. We used to just drive around and go up toward a home. That's when we used to do some of the uh, scavenger hunts with picking up some of the kids. You know, just kind of win their confidence, become friends with them for a while. Start inviting them to the parties. The kids were 10 years old or older. In 1986, King's plundering of Boys Town was reported by staff to its chief executive, Father Val Peter. Subsequent testimony proves that he carried out his own investigation but that King's victims refused to talk to him. Monsignor Hupp now blames himself for Boys Town's association with Larry King. Well, in retrospect, I uh, regret having any association with uh, uh, Larry King. Uh, had I known it at the time, it would never have happened. Could you understand why a very detailed report from a social worker employed at Boys Town identifying children and identifying their alleged abusers never saw the light of day nothing happened with that no i couldn't understand that because had i known that had been 
I wouldn't put up with that. But uh, is that something like that happened? I don't know. Again, some extremely important information. And I suggest you do your own research by watching that Conspiracy of Silence video in its entirety and by seeking out information about John DeCamp and his ongoing investigation into the Franklin case. So it's obvious that the idea of male escorts in the White House and in Washington's political elite, especially in the Republican Party, is not a new phenomenon, and it does not start or end with Jeff Gannon, a.k.a. James Guckert. But is there a more substantial connection between the Franklin case and the J.G. Jeff Gannon, who was J.G. James Guckert, who may be J.G. Johnny Gosh. Only this. The man that you heard in that documentary, talking about being one of Larry King's child prostitutes, who had been in charge of picking up other children off the streets and indoctrinating them into the child sex slavery ring of which he was a part, was Paul Bonassi. And Paul Bonassi has testified that one of the children that he picked up and indoctrinated into the child sex slavery ring was Johnny Gosh. Johnny Gosh may very well have been one of those boys flown out to Washington for the political sex parties. I don't claim to have any answers in this case, but I do ask the question once more and hope that you will use this as basis for your own research into the subject. Who is Jeff Gannon? That's all for today. Thank you for joining me, and join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. I, I just don't get it. How he got a press pass yes. on a on a false name, on how, an alias. How, I, I, I don't I, know how that happened. You have to you have to be cleared through well, the Secret Service in order to get a press pass, which you have to wear at all time. I mean, there's something behind this story that hasn't come out.